Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Oh, something Heather and I were talking about last week, I think this was a really great conversation. We were talking about how we were made holy by the effective work of Jesus, right? And how that's applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And now think about this, the Holy Spirit can only indwell holy people. So the, the funny thing to me is Christians have no problem being like, oh, well, yeah, the moment you come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Amen, I agree. I agree. The Holy Spirit indwells you the moment you become a believer and you give your life to Jesus. But the Holy Spirit cannot reside in someone who is not holy. So there's a connection here. So your metaphysical heart is made holy that moment you trust Jesus. It's, it's consecrated and now belongs to you. And so it's branded by belongs to God and now is his domain. That in that moment, there's something ontological to your being that takes place there to now you, are, you belong to God. And that has obviously so many ramifications and implications. And your whole life is an outworking of that. But that status change happens instantaneously. And that, re that relates to things like when we talk about justification and stuff. You are justified. You're declared righteous by God the moment you come to Jesus. But you're also sanctified. And then you're working that out the rest of your life. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6.11, I will read it to you so you don't have to turn there. But 1 Corinthians 6.11, I want to read to you two from two translations. They're both great translations, by the way. <laughs> the ESV and the NLT did a great job on this. I want to read both because it will show you what we're talking about. And this is just part of the consistency in Scripture in this. The ESV says this, In such were some of you, and he's comparing their former way of life to where they are now. Oh, that's interesting. That's how we talked about it in First Peter last week, their former way of life to who they are now. So, in such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were sanctified, past tense, in Greek and in English. <laughs> past tense, action, already completed. You were sanctified. Not a process, a change of status. You've been brought into the realm of the holy. Now another, the same, same verse, but in the NLT. And this one does it well too. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. I love this. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But you were made holy. Uh, in Greek, this is the known as your aorist tense. And when the aorist tense, I'm going to, this is going to sound super nerdy. Stick with me. I will explain it. When aorist tense is used in the indicative mood in Greek, uh, that communicates something, of, something that happened in time. So the aorist tense is your past tense verb to communicate something that happened in time. So when it says you were made holy, that's saying something that happened in the past. 
But also, this is the passive voice in Greek. Well, passive voice is kind of like our English when we use active voice and passive voice, right? Active voice is the, um, the subject is doing the action, the verb. The passive voice is that you are passive in the action of the verb. So when it's saying you were made holy and it's in the passive voice, let's think about it this way. You did nothing about it. You've been made holy and you, did, you had no part in it. You had no part in it. So that's why all, all this that we're talking about here is not to make you cocky or anything like that. Like, man, make no mistake. If anything, all this conversation about being made holy should actually humble us in a sense. Because we're made holy, and it's done, but we're made holy in Christ because of what he's done for us. And we didn't do anything to achieve it. So that's really important as we talk about this. Cool. Holy people, holy purpose. Let's talk about this. First uh, Peter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure and spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, highlight, circle, underline, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, highlight, circle, underline, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God to Jesus Christ. That's verse five. Let's just cl- stop there for a second. Um, there's this comparison here of like, Jesus was the living stone, and now you've been made into living stones. See, there's, there's this consistent motif in, in the New Testament where Jesus is the true temple, but then also God's people are God's temple now. And that's not a contradiction. It's just, it's the both and. And that's part of why when you talk about being the body of Christ, well, you are the hands and feet of now his active presence in the world right now at this moment. But yeah, yeah. So verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important stone, in other words, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Let's stop there for a second. So while while we don't get this exact description of believers elsewhere in the New Testament being living stones, like I kind of already alluded to, we consistently get this language that believers are described as God's temple or his house. I'm sure you can probably think of a few references, but, you know, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Hebrews 3, 6. If these are just arbitrary references, that's fine. If you know or want to look those up, that's cool too, and I can email you those if you'd like. The, the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. And now thinking about Peter's audience too, that, that's pastoral to them as well. This isn't just facts. It's pastoral. They've been rejected. They feel rejected in their society that they live in as Christians. There's, they're being ostracized because of their allegiance to Jesus. And so because they're being ostracized and reviled and borderline persecuted, persecuted in certain ways, more so economic at this point, at least for his audience, but because they're experiencing hardship on behalf of being a Christian, man, there's great comfort in being like, ah, we're following in the footsteps of our Savior. He was rejected too. There's solace in that. There's comfort. There's there's this reminder, and Peter does this often, and we talked about this in week one, I think it was, 
that he, he does this parallel where it's like, okay, Christ, suffering, and then glory. Believers, suffering, hardship, glory. Like, there, there's this path we tread and we walk, and we don't have to do the compare and contrast game of like, well, how much do we suffer and all that? Yeah, I get it. There's a lot of people who suffer much worse than the people in this room. I get that. But that's not the point. The point's not to do the comparison game. The point's to understand the text. And the point is that for Christians in general, your faith will bring hardship in general, though it might differ on the spectrum of what kind of hardship. Your faith will bring hardship, but you're following in the footsteps of the Savior because it ends in glory. What do you think it means to be um, built up as a spiritual house? Let's hang on that word for a second. No, it is. It is the church. Yeah, you are that. Like, this is another way of saying you are the, te- the new temple. Right. To be the spiritual house is another way to say, say the new temple. But I'm just, yeah, just, what's it mean by spiritual? Does it mean immaterial? So uh, another, we're going to do another little nerdy note here. The Greek word for spiritual uh, is pneumatikos, pneumatikos. And you've probably heard words like pneuma, um, yeah, it means spirit, you know, and all that. But like pneumatikos, those ekos ending words that sound like that in Greek, these are, these are adjectives, by the way. But in Greek, these don't refer to what things are made out of. So when a, gr- a Greek word ends with ekos, like an adjective, so pneuma, pneumatikos, it doesn't mean it's spiritual in that it's made out of that's the material substance it's made out of, it's actually referring to what it's energized by. And this is actually, let me give you a perfect demonstration in English of how we talk about things. Okay, when you talk about a steamboat, when you talk about a steamboat, a steamboat isn't made out of steam. It's energized by steam. It's powered by steam. So a spiritual uh, building now is what we are, right? We're a spiritual building in Christ, right? Um, Doesn't mean that we're made out of some, you know, substance of spirit or whatever thingy you want to get at. No, the point is that your inner, this house that God has made us into is energized by and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means there. So it's energized by that. So think about steamboat, Holy Spirit. Um, and so, and what's the purpose of this spiritual house that we are? Is to offer spiritual sacrifices. And this is another interesting thing too, because in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were offered to God and now something has kind of shifted in Peter's language and, he, and in the New Testament as a whole. But, and he'll kind of pepper a few of these things in throughout the rest of his letter. But in the Old Testament, when you offered sacrifice, part of the sacrificial system was to be offered to God. And to, obviously, there's so much we could talk about there. But it was just to teach the people about God's character and stuff, right? But in this case, it's taking a different shape. Because while, while all of our spiritual sacrifices, you know, that language there, are offered to God and for the glory of God, the shape of it actually models Jesus' sacrifice in that Jesus' self-giving love offers the shape of what our spiritual sacrifices now take and look like. So what, what do I mean? Well, it's not something super specific. It, it, uh, you're looking at the same text as me. It's not saying spiritual sacrifices that look like X, Y, Z. No, spiritual sacrifices modeled by the self-giving love of Jesus, can take a variety of forms. But the point being is that it's the sacrifices that end up shaping and serving the world around us, modeled through the self-giving love of Jesus. That's a spiritual sacrifice. Yeah, see, that'd be Paul's language. Paul would say, you know, in Romans 12, offer your bodies, it's Romans 12, 1, right? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to him. 
Amen. And so see how, like, uh, this is how also we can appreciate, too, when we read our Bible, like, the different authors involved are using different, sometimes, like, angles or metaphors and stuff to do it. So while Paul likes to talk about us as being the new temple of God and, you know, be offering ourselves as living sacrifices, Peter talks about us as being living stones or, you know, a spiritual house, um, and also to offer spiritual sacrifices. Paul and Peter are getting at the same thing. They're just using some slightly different vernacular. Yeah, let me try to paraphrase what I think you're saying, and I think it's brilliant. Uh, while the old covenant sacrifices were about putting something to death for the sake of the sacrifice, new, sa- new covenant sacrifices are about bringing to life right. things. You go and you're, you're part of repairing and healing and bringing restoration. That's spiritual sacrifices because it's, it's self-giving love. Yeah, raising the life, yeah. Because it's, 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 again, if, if Jesus provides the shape of what sacrifice is in the new covenant because it's once and for all sacrifice, but in general, Jesus is self-giving love, then let self-giving love be the kind of the parameters of your, like, well, what does spiritual sacrifice look like? Self-giving love. I'm just trying to give you handles on it. And like I said, because it's, it's kind of an abstract idea, at least in this text, we kind of have to tear down that chasm in our mind between the ideas of like the sacred and the secular, as if like, Basically, since we are made holy, right? We've, been, we've established that well at this point. Since you've been made holy by Christ, part of your task now, everything that you do now as God's holy people is a holy task, whether we treat it with that kind of dignity or not. And that's an important caveat because myself included, don't always take what I do as seriously as the person I am walking into that. So like, if who I am is holy, everywhere I go, everywhere I step, every action I do is actually reflecting something about God and actually is, has an opportunity to participate in God's work and to pr- bring spiritual, you know, offer spiritual sacrifices, to embody Jesus' self-giving love. Now, I don't always treat everything I do and every opportunity I have with that kind of magnitude, with the opportunity that it's, everything is now holy in that I am walking into that situation. See, like I said, I'm not as quite as organized tonight in how I'm thinking. Yes, Bruce, we forget who we are, and that's exactly why. <laughs> See, this, all this, all, what are we supposed to do with this is part of this wrestling. All this is part of this wrestling. What we're doing here is you're wrestling with, okay, this is who I am. How do I live in accordance with who I truly am now in Christ? That's the Christian life. Sure. Yeah, yeah, you have to wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with that because there's still obviously choice involved with. We often make choices that aren't in line with who we are. And that's where we, as we talked about last week, if you're just a sinner saved by grace, then sinner's gonna sin. Like, and so if you see yourself as just, well, I'm just a sinner, I'm not holy. Holiness is way over there. I can try, but I'm not gonna ever be holy. Well then, man, the way you view yourself right there is of course, like, sinner's gonna sin. But if you view yourself as someone who is a holy one, who is a saint, who is someone who has been sanctified by Jesus, you belong to him, you're branded by him, you're in Christ now, you're in the realm of the Holy, the Holy Spirit residing in you, insert all whatever language you want to bring in, you have a different relationship with sin now. So now when you sin, you're like, that's not who I am. I did that, but that's not who I am. I'm, so that's why I don't, I don't even like to put labels on myself like, I might lie, but I'm not a liar. I might say something harmful to my wife, but that's not who I truly am. I betrayed my identity when I acted that way. 
Yeah, you can, yeah, absolutely. So even as a holy person, you know, since holiness is a status, you can still be deceived. You can still fall into sin. You can betray your true identity, but it doesn't take away the fact that that's who you are in Christ now. That's why all this instruction, all these imperatives are about, uh, this is actually very common in uh, scholarly literature about the Bible. And it says something to the effect of become who you are. Become who you are. The, the Christian life is about becoming who you are in Christ. So, that's the, so it, the Christian life is actually a lot about reverse engineering. We think about it the, uh, so chronologically. Okay, okay, I need to become more loving, forgiving, all this. Well, let's think about the opposite way. In Christ, let's reverse engineer. You are loved, so let's reflect that love into the world. You are forgiven, so how can I not forgive someone? You are holy, so be holy in what you do. See, it comes out of this place of authenticity, and it's organic, actually, to the work of the Spirit in your life. It's not contra that. And that's what I'm trying to say is really important, and that shift in our mind needs to take place. Because I agree, Bruce. I think often we're going to try to be deceived, but the enemy is going to try to deceive us. That's not who you are. You're not holy. You're not precious to God. You're not, he's not going to think of you as part of his temple, his new temple that's bringing light into the world. No way. You're not loved. All those things are lies, and that's why we need to stand in who we are and remember who we are, because out of that comes the true, authentic self of who we are. We are becoming who we are. It's a really important thing in the Christian life. Yeah, so what Jesus modeled for us, and it's something we talked about last week, actually, is that being holy is not about withdrawing. It's about engaging, but it's about engaging in a way that doesn't compromise, actually stays true to who you are as a holy one, and that transforms others around you. So that, so the way in which Jesus was inclusive, if you want to use that term, is he was a tr- he was a transformational kind of inclusive. The environments and the people he engaged with, he transformed them by interacting with them. He didn't compromise and stoop to certain levels. He wasn't like, and I know you're not saying it this way, but like he wasn't hanging out with a prostitute and a sinner and hiring that prostitute <laughs> and things like that. And I know you're not saying that, but like, I'm just, you know, to make the point very clear, although he went into environments and in, in engaged society, he, he didn't withdraw from it. He also engaged society in a way that's transformative. And uh, yeah, so to press that even further, it's like when Jesus would interact with someone who is unclean, like the man with leprosy, Mark chapter one, uh, instead of Jesus taking on, becoming unclean from that, this man became clean and healed from it. There was this reverse transaction. What Jesus did, because he was Christ in part. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about it. <laughs> but, but, but what he did is he's, he's reversing what was wrong. The stigma. And he's reversing the stigma. He's reversing the stigma. He's reversing the healing. All this is part of this like reversal of bringing about like restoration in a sense. And so part of when we think about healing, that's why I'm so passionate about this just as much. It's not about withdrawing from society. It's actually about we better re-engage, but as the people who do that reversal, that when people interact with us, instead of it being a place of condemnation or anything, may they interact with somehow, some way, Jesus. For the sake of time, let's move on to verse 9 and 10. These are the last two verses we're covering tonight, but I think there's some good things to talk about here. I want to get your guys' thoughts on these two. Which, by the way, if you haven't noticed already, there's a ton of Old Testament passages that have been interwoven in what Peter's been saying. And verse 9 is going to, he's going to use uh, some content from Exodus 19, from Isaiah 43, and from Hosea um, 2. So, you know, he is just really, you could easily miss it. (laughs) But yeah, verse 9 in verse 10. 
But you are a chosen race, so, but you, as opposed to those who rejected the cornerstone. So he is talking about people who are in Christ, Christ followers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, if this is not tying this group of Gentiles into the story of God from cover to cover, I don't know what it is. It's a really cool thing too, because like he's quoting things from the Old Testament, he's also bringing them into the story of Israel, saying this is who you are. Um, He's also, in a sense, telling this group of nobodies, yes, this group of nobodies who feel ostracized and rejected by society, that they're given the most privileged task imaginable to be royal priests who announce the kingdom of God, which is driving back the darkness just as it drove back the darkness in their own lives. It's so incredible. And this is true of us too. So let's not just read this for their original audience, but true of us now. But you, guys, you in this room, read that as a personal declaration of who we are as a collective people, of course. How... How dignifying. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. I mean, you can hang on every word if you wanted to. Gosh, holy nation, a people for his own possession. You can meditate on each of those and just spend probably like an hour on each of those. There's way too much content that can come out of that. Cool, yep. And Peter's day, so specifically, darkness was often used as an image of ignorance. And now, what do we see previously about his audience? Well, and about anyone. Uh, he was saying, well, you, you were formerly in your way of ignorance. He was talking about their, like, lack of belief as a state of ignorance. It's darkness. And, you know, often in our modern vernacular, we'll talk about people, oh, they're just lost. All that, yes, oh, that kind of terminology. But also, uh, it was often used as death, too. Death was associated with darkness. And I think probably both are in mind here. Called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, really cool motif in the New Testament talking about how we are people of light. Um, you can find that in Paul's writings too. So again, Paul and Peter are on the same page. They say these things often. So the, as you can see in this passage too, I think the whole point of being holy is that it's to be a light in dark places. Uh, so it, it's almost like there's an assumption here that we have a relationship with the world around us, although we're distinct from it. So there's uh, a few weeks ago, we were exploring how one of Peter's favorite words, and he never uses this word, but the, when we talk about First Peter, there's this word tension. So here with holiness, there's a tension. This tension is that you are distinct. You are set apart. That is what it means. You're distinct and set apart, devoted to God, to be placed right in the hub of darkness. <laughs> tension! Whoa! Big time tension. Big time conflict. And I think this is just a little bit of speculation here. I think part of what makes this part, passage so pastoral to them is, oh, this is, um, this could even, you could even ascribe it to the hand of God as to why we feel so dislocated in where we are geographically, etc. Oh, so what if instead of seeing this as I feel like I'm in exile, as no, I'm on mission? Oh, instead, I, I hate that I'm surrounded by so much darkness in this place. I disagree with the politics. I disagree with the economics. I disagree with all this. No, no, no. Guys, I, I, I'm placed here because I'm supposed to be distinct. 
but I'm supposed to be in the hub of darkness. Because how can you help proclaim the excellencies of the one who's called you out of darkness into this marvelous light if you were just around a bunch of people who are also just in the light? No, of course not. Like, Christians are supposed to be surrounded by people who are also not Christians. Hopefully you also have a community who are Christians, so let's make that clear. But yeah, I, I think it's really important. And so it's, it's almost like, and if we think about this, it, we only have a few minutes, but like if we had to hone in on one of these, I think it's the royal priesthood, I think is a really intriguing one. Because what do priests do? And not, not modern conceptions of priests, biblically, what do priests do? There's a lot of the answers that can be given, but I'm kind of fishing for at least a few different ones. What do priests do in a biblical sense? Give God's word to the people. Give God's word, yeah, absolutely, true. They went between God and the people. Yeah, yeah, they, they were the in-between from God and people, yep. Yep, these are all right answers. Someone said sacrifices. Yep, yeah, which just ties into this, offered sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, yep, yep. All these things are part of it, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Those are all correct. And that's actually all part of what I'm getting at here is that they're almost the mediators of God's presence into the world, which is, you know, what you're getting at here. So if, you, if I had to give language to it, it's like, as the royal priesthood, we mediate God's presence into the world. And so you're almost like the people who are like, if there's a storehouse of God's light, his blessing, his ministry, we are the ones bringing that into the world. We are ushering that into the world. We are the vehicle driving that into the world. And this may or may not be correct. I'll leave that there. But what if God limited how much that was brought into the world based on our participation in that? What if God sovereignly, of course, put a limitation on how much there was a mediation of his presence in the world based on how the royal priesthood brought that presence into the world? All this is how we have to kind of like personally think through what is your participatory role in that. We can leave here tonight with this being a Bible study of being like awesome, made holy, royal priesthood, all these great themes. Yeah, good. You should hopefully know and relish those things, but like, how does that change how you, the perspective of how you walk into environments? How does that challenge you? And, and here's the cool thing. I'm not even saying you have to go and insert yourself in new environments that you're not in. I want you just to take inventory of what environments you're already in and reconsider your role as a member of the royal priesthood in those environments. That's all I'm asking you to consider. I'm asking you to reconsider your Christian vocation in light of your earthly vocation, your heavenly calling in light of your day-to-day responsibilities. We don't all have to quit everything, sell everything. Definitely not. No, actually, that's the thing. I want you to be missionaries in your own zip code. Like, I think your own zip code needs you. Um, I think your own zip code needs the royal priesthood. It's true. No, all, exactly. All this, and, and, and when I say I want this to challenge you, I want this to challenge you in a way that almost like puts a smile on your face. I want this to challenge you in a way that inspires you. So I don't want this to be a way that challenges you in that you're like <sighs> drudgery, looking down on yourself or anything like that. 
This is meant to compel and inspire us. Again, I feel like if there was a tone to this passage, because when you know when you read text, you don't always get the right tone. So if you're reading this, I don't want the, the tone you read this with to be like, so hey, so you're supposed to be the royal priesthood. It's like, no, guys, do you know who you are? Oh my gosh, you're the royal priesthood. You're the conduit of God's blessing and mediating his presence into the world. How cool is that? Or to say it another creative way, you are the people who are creating spaces where God's presence is welcomed, known, enjoyed, and adored. Did you get that? You are the people who are creating spaces everywhere you go where God's presence is welcomed, known, enjoyed, and adored. If you're walking if like you're that, Christian, then you're not. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe yeah. what's going on in politics, and we're yeah. complaining about everything, and we're why can't we be in heaven already? And then who would ever want that? No. Who would ever want to follow that? Like, why would I want to know your God? Yeah, that's like you're, so depressing. You're a priest of what God? Noted. Yeah. Not going right. to worship that God. <laughs> So this is exactly, and these are the kind of things that, going back to our T word, tension, like we have to wrestle with the tension in these things because kind of like what we said back in week one, or was it week one or week two, uh, the tension of sorrow and joy, and Peter welcomes that. Peter welcomes that you can, you're invited to experience the joy of the Lord, but you can also walk through really sorrowful times, and that's not a contradiction. And so while you can be authentic to that, to that experience of having sorrow and joy in your life, and still be part of the royal priesthood. You don't have to hang up your hat and say, no, I'm having a rough day. I, uh, royal priesthood thing, being holy, all that. I'm leaving that at the door because I'm just sad today. Like, I don't even know how to say this. So this is not going to come out very articulate. But you can even bring sorrow with you while you're being in the royal priesthood in the environments you're in. Because there's a way to lament in a way that's godly. There's a way to be frustrated. There's a way to be angry in a way that's godly. So all I'm saying is that the, the spectrum of emotions don't mean that there's only certain select emotions that will, okay, cool, I'm suiting up today. for the I could be the royal priesthood today. I'm, I'm feeling it today. Even on the days you're not feeling it, guys, like that's where, again, it's kind of like, Lord, what do you have for me today? Like how, what's my role in this? And yes, we're going to mess it up a lot. I get that. That's 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like that's like let's be we're gonna mess it up, and that's okay in the sense that it's covered and all of that. But like, I I I think my hardship with walking away with this one tonight is I even don't feel like I have all of this fleshed out of the implications of this beautiful truth. I want to. I want to have so much. I want to be able to tell you guys, here's the three things to do in light of this. Like, I don't have that. But maybe that's okay because sometimes it's good to leave wrestling with it. Sometimes it's good to leave with a lot, a lot of clarity. And if we have that, great. And if God gives you a lot of direction on how to live this out, awesome. Praise Jesus. Tell me more about it. But maybe part of it is the wrestling. Maybe part of it is this is my identity and we have to continue wrestling with how that's worked out in our life. And again, in an inspiring, encouraging way that is like, this is who we get to be. Not who we ought to be, who we get to be. Although we are the collective royal priesthood, we each get to play our part and own that role that you have and the gifts that you have. And it doesn't have to look like me and it doesn't have to look like you. We get to, and so although we're, um, one of the things I say often is this, we're, uh, 
we're united in purpose, but we're unique in calling. Because we have the same purpose and the same God we serve, so we're united in purpose, but we're unique in the calling and by which we carry out that purpose. So although we have a singular purpose, everyone in this room, all of us here is the royal priesthood, we have a singular purpose, but we each have a unique calling in how we carry out and participate in that purpose. So embrace that, and that's good. And I think we should be aware of our gifts, strengths, talents, etc. Um, both spiritual and natural, and <laughs> everything in between. Uh, but like, so I agree. I appreciate you bringing that up, Wayne. I, I really do. I think that's a good thing to take inventory of because God wants you just to use those things for this task, for this task of mediating God's presence into the world.